Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, LARB's Gender and Sexuality Editor, and I'm joined remotely today by LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So today we have a conversation with actress Laverne Cox and director Sam Fader about their new documentary, Disclosure, in which transgender creatives and thinkers explore how the lives and voices of the transgender community are represented in film and television, both from the past and in the present. So the documentary is fantastic. Everyone should watch it. And just like two personal things, it's like they revisit a lot of these movies from the 90s that I grew up with as a child that I just loved in terms of, you know, they were kind of my first like gay movies um, Mm -hmm. or ones that spoke to a kind of gay or queer aesthetic, but they really center how harmful many of the narratives about trans people were in those movies. So it was like this very interesting kind of return to older things. And then suddenly recognizing how my experience in between that time had totally changed the way that I saw that. And I, I just thought they did a really great job also of showing how representation at once like really matters. It can help change things, but it also can mean like more risk or this kind of always this risk of backlash when you get more representation, which I just loved. Yeah. And I thought that the documentary was very good at pointing out representational patterns in movies and in TV, yes. which... I think when they're all taken separately or you you just think of one movie or one TV show, it doesn't occur to you that this is necessarily a recurring pattern, right? And that trans people are represented in a particular way over and over and over again. And this movie really makes that clear. I mean, there's a lot of archival footage. There's a lot yeah. of discussion about, as you said, old shows, old movies, things that I had, I, you know, would never have occurred to me, but it's because I never put them together in that way. So it's also really like a powerful testament to the kind of patterns we've all been living with. Yes. Not talking about. And here's a a movie that really makes that clear, which I thought was really powerful. I also did a double feature last night. I I watched the movie and I watched Paris is Burning. Um, Oh, wait, had you never seen Paris is Burning before? Never seen it. I'd never seen it. How is this possible? We have known each other for, I'm not going to say how many years on the radio, but like we've known each other for this long. It's like one of my favorite movies of all time. And I've caught it like a million times. I don't know. I don't know. It's, you know what kept happening? I feel like I kept trying to watch it. And then whoever I was with would be like, I've already seen it. (laughs) (laughs) And then so I was always, always kind of like quietly just meant to watch it on my own, which is exactly what I did last night. Um, I don't know why it took me this long, but yeah, it's, it was fantastic. And it was a great kind of double, double viewing experience to really see a classic along with this other new film, recognize the faults of the classic and see its great points. Yeah. Uh, and then also just think about, you know, it within a broader history. All right. Well, let's, um, without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Laverne and Sam. Let's do it. We're honored to have Laverne Cox and Sam Fader with us remotely. Many of you will know Laverne Cox for her performance as Sophia Bursette on Orange is the New Black, as well as for her public advocacy for transgender rights and special features, such as Laverne Cox, The T-Word, which won a Daytime Emmy Award in 2015. 
She has also received three Emmy nominations as an actress, though I expect she will receive many, many more. Sam Fader is a filmmaker whose work explores the power dynamics and politics of the media industry's representation of the trans community and its struggles. Sam's 2014 film, Kate Bornstein is a Queer and Pleasant Danger, a study of the famed self-described gender outlaw, was named one of the Advocate's Best LGBT Documentaries. They both join us today to talk about Disclosure, a new documentary on Netflix that explores how transgender people have been portrayed in media from the past to the present, with a critical focus on both the costs of harmful representation, as well as the opportunities and challenges the community has faced as trans narratives and experiences move into mainstream media representation. Thanks so much for joining us, Laverne and Sam. And congratulations on the movie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. To just start, there's an interesting moment and it kind of frames the whole documentary is we tend to think, and this comes from decades of LGBTQ activism, but this is also part of civil rights activism, that representation matters, right? And that more representation is a better thing. But one of the things that I think your documentary really puts pressure on or draws into the light for many people is that it's like representation also means risk. So you talk, for example, about how transgender people, as they get more representation in mainstream media, can also face heightened public scrutiny and potentially violence. So can you just kind of talk about that matrix, I guess, of representation as both boon and potential challenge? I love that question because it really was what started this project, you know, as soon as there was an increase in visibility in the mainstream in 2014, I immediately had this sort of gave me such pause. And I, as a filmmaker, as an activist, as a trans person, I became really concerned because even though I am a filmmaker and I deeply believe in visibility, I also understand that is not the goal. And I really wanted to bring that conversation into the public as there was this celebration around visibility. It felt really important to understand that not only is there a deep paradox when it comes to visibility, but it is a means to an end. And the other thing that I felt that was really important to bring into the conversation is that we've always been here, right? Not only have we always been part of every fabric of every society, but we've also always been in film and TV. So those were really the two things that were very alarming to me that I felt were missing from the public conversation at the time. And it really seemed like there was a story being told that had a lot of gaps in it. And I wanted to tell that story more fully. Great. And, you know, Laverne, can you talk a little bit about your experience kind of as, yeah, I want to be careful with the history here, but it's like when you played, you know, Sophia Bursette, that was a trans narrative in a big big budget Netflix production, right? Everybody was watching. It was huge. Can you talk a little bit about the beginnings of that experience to kind of where we are now? Like how you've seen this kind of movement or, and I don't want to push the narrative because maybe also the story is there hasn't been much movement in terms of trans representation, just from your personal experience. I didn't realize it was big (laughs) when we were doing it. We were just so happy to be working back in 2012 when we started shooting season one and then it kind of got big. Although the budgets were obviously, you know, 
we're not bad. <laughs> uh, production budgets, I should say. Yeah, yeah let's be clear. <laughs> I'm sure the other budgets didn't come until a little bit later, but sure. Yeah. So, uh, for some people. So, <laughs> oh, the tea is spilling. Oh, my goodness. Um, with nothing but love. So when Orange is New Black came out in 2013, there were no transgender actors on television with recurring roles. And last week I checked, according to GLAD, there were about 26 transgender recurring roles on television as of 2020. So I would say that's a difference. And I would say that that's improvement from nothing to anything is an improvement, certainly. So, you know, I think piggybacking off of what Sam said about increased sort of threat with, that comes with increased visibility. I just remember when I was in the cover of Time magazine in 2014, I remember, I think, saying in that article or saying at the time that for that month, the month of June, four transgender women were murdered that month. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That I'm Laverne Cost on the cover of Time magazine and trans women are still being murdered, right? And that has not unfortunately stopped. It's actually apparently increased according to all yeah. the data we have. So, there's that, but we have seen the increased presence of trans folks on television, not film as much, definitely on YouTube, right? We have influencers who are trans, like the landscape has really changed and the media landscape around like openly trans folks who are acting on television and on YouTube, etc. But there's also been an increased legislative attack as well. We've seen on a federal level, unprecedented attacks on trans folks and rescinding of rights, particularly with yep. this current administration. And also on the state level, there's been a proliferation, I think since 2016, there have probably been about 500 pieces of legislation introduced in state legislatures all over the country, targeting trans folks anywhere from bathroom use to adoption to trans kids playing on sports teams, et cetera, et cetera. So there've been all of these sort of legislative attacks on trans folks as well in the past four years, I would say. One of the things, this is for both of you, Sam and Laverne, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the film is that it also tracks how you watched us as children and as young adults and what you saw when you were growing up. And I was wondering, could you share some of the things that really, I mean, you do this in the documentary that really formulated your understanding of gender or also of entertainment, because this documentary is so much about what entertainment is and what's funny and what's not funny and how all those things are interconnected. You know, honestly, the things that when I look back now and Mm -hmm. sort of categorize into this conversation, they're all things that made me disidentify with transness. Mm -hmm. You know, they were all things that I internalized and understood to be, you know, jokes and mentally ill and killers and victims, you know, everything I saw that could have possibly had some sort of shape or mirroring of something happening with my gender, I did not want to associate with them at all. And so I really didn't understand my gender experience until I met trans people in real life. Mm -hmm. And when was that? God, my late 20s. It's a long time to to feel alone like that. You know, it's confusing time, you know, and you try on different things and eventually something fits. And I think that's a pretty human experience. I think, you know, what's uniquely different for trans people is that there's so little language and there's so little Mm -hmm. room within that particular experience to try different things on. And mostly what's offered to you is seen as abhorrent. And mostly what's offered to you actually disavows what your experience is. 
In a similar way, one of the things I really appreciated about the documentary, even though it, I have to say it like threw me back in my seat a little bit. So you talk about this kind of history of trans representation in film, and there's very interesting, and this is one of many reasons everyone should watch this documentary right now, because you also talk about the imbrication of kind of anti-trans, anti-Black kind of representation, right, in historical film. But also, more recently, it's like, I was a kid in the 90s, grew up, I loved Soap Dish, and I loved Just One of the Guys, right? And for me, those films were about gayness, like in a way that I didn't have a way to talk about. But as I'm watching them from the present, when you show these clips, I'm realizing how horribly transphobic those shows were. There's a version of this also for something like The Birdcage, that while I love that movie in the past and still like it, it's like I can see the problems of that representation. And I'm wondering if you think like our ability to kind of recognize that problem in the ways that the documentary is addressing, is that about the gains that activism has made for us? Or like, are we still very much at risk of making those same representational mistakes? Well, let's hope we're not. I think when we know better, we do better. And I still think right now there's a lot of conversation about Gone with the Wind and should it be pulled from television because of, you know, how racist it is. And I I don't think it should be, personally. I think we can hopefully, you know, instill people to be able to think critically about film and encourage kids to do the same thing. But I think that when we know better, we do better. So hopefully we have an understanding now of what we didn't have an understanding of back in the 90s, right? Or even in the 2000s. And so now we'll make different choices, but we have to have the information. And so I think that is what disclosure does. So many of these conversations have been had in the trans community for years about some of this work, but I've never seen it handled cinematically. I've never seen different trans folks have different experiences of the same film. I think one of the beautiful things about our film is that someone can have a, one of the contributors, I think Michael had a beautiful experience watching Boys Don't Cry. And then Brian Michael Smith had a very different kind of experience. And so that both those things can be true at the same time, right? And so it's not about discarding things, it's about engaging critically. You know, Sam, to kind of take a similar tack, I'm wondering if both what you want people to take away from this documentary, but also what specifically Hollywood needs to take away from it, or kind of the media industry. And at least part of that is giving us a wider band, or it seems like it would be giving us a wider band of trans experience. So as you guys go over, not like focusing on the question of genitalia, right? This kind of straight cisgender anxiety that usually frames those narratives, but also moving out of, on the one hand, wanting to capture like the risk and the danger that many, many trans people face, but also not allowing that to be the dominant narrative. Like, is there a way that we can also just celebrate joy and things like that? I'm just throwing too much probably out there, but that's kind of where I'm thinking about like what you want people to take from this. You know, there's the one thing that every image pointed back to when I was doing my research, you know, no matter what it was, whether it was a joke or whether it was something abhorrent, they all point back to saying that trans people aren't real. Mm. So that's the first thing I would love everyone to question, whether they're in the industry or not, right? Are they creating characters that aren't real? And are they using that as a narrative device? 
Yeah. And as you're watching, you know, why are you reacting to a joke? Are you reacting to a narrative device because it disavows what trans people say? And, you know, what does that do to your understanding of trans people? So that's a big takeaway. You know, there's so many messages baked into the narrative and it's held within this very familiar, these familiar clips and intimate reflections and stories, you know, and Yes, it's a history of trans representation, but it's also about accountability. It's about historical erasure. It's about racism and misogyny and trans misogyny and the utility of visibility within social justice movements, right? As we said yeah. earlier, it's about the paradox of increased visibility. It's so deeply about spectatorship, you know, and of course, our unique production model, which deeply influenced the narrative, you know, so there's so many access points. There's so many layers that I hope people can connect to. And then I've been making documentaries since 2003, and I've mostly been, you know, within indie doc worlds, queer indie doc worlds. And so often what we see in all types of media that focus on trans people, and it's particular when the approach is, you know, quote unquote, sympathetic or empathetic, it's mm-hmm. these sort of sad, tragic trans stories that the trans person is alone, is in isolation. And I really question the utility of that. Yes, those are some people's stories and we need to see it. But when it's the only story we see, I'm not sure that this pity is really the access to freedom. Like, I'm Mm. not sure that pity is the access to change. I think it does other things to the spectator than what trans people actually need. It was so important to me in this film to hold a multiplicity of experiences and a multiplicity of voices. There's not just one experience. There's not just one narrative. There's not just one type of trans person. And because that's what I've seen so much in the name of transness, even in well-meaning productions, it was so deeply necessary from the beginning of this film that it held many, many voices with many different experiences. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Laverne Cox and Sam Fader about their new documentary, Disclosure. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We are joined remotely by Percival Everett today. Percival Everett is an acclaimed writer, and his latest novel is called Telephone. Um, Percival is here to recommend a book for us. Percival, what book are you going to recommend? I will recommend um, Lawrence Stern's uh, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy. Good one. When did you first read that book? I'm guessing that I was in college. But I don't know when in college. I didn't read it for a class. I read it on my own. And what, what I what I mm-hmm. love about it is now, especially, is is I don't know what postmodern means, but this uh, 18th century novel is more postmodern than anything I've I've read in the, in the 20 or 21st centuries. It's it's daring. I'd never use the word genius. It's playful. It, you never get to the story. Right. It's infinite digression. We're going to get the life of Tristram Shandy, but we never get past his conception. How can you not love that? It's pretty great. Also, the uncle is one of my favorite funny characters, I think, yeah. in literature. Have you seen the film? I have. I was actually going to ask you if you've seen it. I love it. Did yeah, you like Cock, it? Cock and Bull is a, is a great film. 
one doesn't go to it to to get the story of Trisham Shandy, which is exactly the point of the novel. It captures the spirit and therefore the story of that novel. It's so smart. I totally agree. It's a really it's a really great film. Okay, so we have a dual recommendation. Percival, will you tell us the title of the book again and the title of the film and the uh, author? Uh, the author is Lawrence Stern. The novel is The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy. And Percival, do you remember the title of the movie again and the director? The Cock and Bull Story, and it's Michael Winterbottom. A great recommendation, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to Percival Everett. His new book is called Telephone. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Laverne Cox and Sam Fader about their new documentary, Disclosure. So, Laverne, I wanted to ask you about um, this question of visibility. And it comes up so much in the documentary of insisting on existence and visibility. And one of the things that I was thinking about is you've become a huge star. And what happens with stars is that they become visible. <laughs> and, and I was wondering how you were thinking about yourself and your own, your power maybe as a star, and also about this question of visibility and just the relationship between those two. I, I don't think of myself as a star. <laughs> I don't like wake up, I'm a, I'm a star. I, <laughs> I, I just don't, I'm sorry. Maybe you should start. Um, <laughs> Like, I definitely, I mean, to be real, like, I def the, the little kid in me, like, ha definitely, like, wanted to be a star, right? Like, the little kid who grew up in Alabama, like, she wanted to be a star, you know? And I think the reality of what my life is now is that it is just, it's a lot of hard work, and now it's in quarantine, and I don't know, I just, I feel like I'm the same person. I think the world has sort of changed around me, and I do feel like I've stepped more into myself and I think the way I've stepped into my power is oh I just feel I feel emboldened and I feel like a sense of possibility that I maybe didn't feel before all of this um before my life changed and so visibility I don't know it's like I you know just promoting this movie I'm like okay as an executive producer I can use like this visibility thing if I am indeed a star we can use that to bring attention to this story and so I think it's always about you know is what, what's the bigger thing like I think just being visible just to be visible seems silly I do enjoy you know I think like most actors have a little bit of like we were a little I'm a little attention star <laughs> you know I've always <laughs> obviously enjoyed a little bit of like you know there's a little look at me that you have to have I think to to do what I do but then like there's a bigger hopefully reason that I want people to look at me hopefully there's something that I that I have to say or something that I, I want to or something someone else has to say that I want to elevate or amplify so I think like in terms of the visibility of having a platform I think part of my job is to amplify messages like the one that's in disclosure amplify messages of, of folks who maybe don't have the platform that I do but um who are saying and doing amazing things so yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. No, it, it really does. Um, is there a time when you started to think about your work as an actress? Because, it, you know, as you just said, you're doing a lot of work. Your work as an actress as indelibly tied to your work as an advocate. 
Was there a time when you were like, you know what, I need to figure out some way to separate these two or um, a way to give myself rest? Or was it, was it always the two were always bound together? It goes back and forth. I mean, I remember distinctly or circa 2015 wanting to sort of go when it was time to promote the new season of Orange is New Black. And I remember I went on, I was doing the press tour, you know, and I was like, I just want to, I just want to be an actress. I just want to go and be an actress and promote my show and not have to have it be attached to some sort of bigger cause. Cause there's a lot of pressure there too, when there's a bigger cause. Right. And it was really interesting how I remember a specific moment I I don't know if I want to bring up the moment, but I remember a specific moment when I like went on a show and I wanted to just be an actress and not be political and made that choice. And then I ended up being sort of dragged into something political, like not, (laughs) not wanting to. And I was like, Oh my God, the second I say, I just want to, you know, go on and be an actress. Like all of a sudden I'm sort of dragged into something I didn't intend. So I, I don't know. It is, I'm a political person. I think for me, it's about just being, allowing myself to be where I'm at. I think like six mm. years ago, I, would, I wouldn't have been dancing. I wouldn't have felt comfortable dancing around in my glam room in a bikini on Instagram. And now I do. And, but yeah. it, and that doesn't, and I don't feel like that undermines my ability to have a complicated conversation about intersectional feminism or the history of trans representation on screen, that I can be multifaceted and I can be multidimensional. And my work too, in terms of just my own self-care is about like trying to be joyous with the responsibility that I've been given to and representation of, of a community um, and tr- trying to do that with more joy and with less, less of the weight weightiness of, um, cause it's a big responsibility that um, I've done, you know, imperfectly often. So yeah, trying to, you know, not put too much pressure on myself to be perfect because that's, Never going to happen. <laughs> that is a great message for literally anyone, I think, like, especially for like people that are, you know, in entertainment or that are creative. Um, I Just as we wrap up, just a kind of last question uh, for both uh, Sam and Laverne, you know, obviously when we put things like this out into the world, there is an investment in futurity, right? We're, we're putting things out because we want to mark where we've been and, and hopefully to kind of move towards something that's better, right? That's everything from art to activism is invested in that kind of thing. So one thing I'd love to hear from both of you is how you see, and I'm sure that you're connected with these people through social media and a bunch of other things and your kind of fan accounts, younger trans people, like the kind of younger trans generation, like do you see something different in their experience than what your experience was growing up? And what kind of future do you want for this youngest generation of trans folks? Mm. Oh my God. Well, it's undeniable that their reality is completely different from the realities that Sam and I grew up with um, when we were younger. I mean, they have YouTube now. They have so many resources around um, just just transitioning and then the, and because the internet gives you also the possibility of connection that you can be, that there's, you need not be isolated the same way that I felt isolated. And I think it sounds like Sam, I don't want to speak for him. seems like he felt as well. So that the, the isolation piece, uh, feeling less isolated, feeling more connected and then having representation that you can look to that maybe maybe it's closer to who you are and I think too how brilliant they are and as I read people's reactions to our film and it's been overwhelmingly positive and it's just 
it's beautiful. It's really, it's really beautiful. But then there's some people who were like, well, there's not that. And there's not, and we know we couldn't be comprehensive. You know, we had the movie was already, yeah. <laughs> there was one cut that was three and a half hours long. I think the first cut that I, I saw, it was three and a half hours. I'm like, <laughs> um, so we couldn't include everything, but then what an opportunity it is for the next person to do the next thing. And so I, I'm so excited about about young people and where they are now and what they're going to do with um, everything that we've laid out for them. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you, yeah, when you ask that question, I can't help but think about, you know, my access to young people is through social media mostly. And, you know, social media is, I think, by far one of the main reasons trans people were able to build up such a voice, you know, in the last 10 years. You know, we know there were trans people before us that lived fulfilling lives and had robust careers. Um, it just, it was very hard to find evidence of that, to find the documentation. And now it's, you know, we're slowly building that archive of, of trans lives that came before us. You know, so, you know, and I also just think about, you know, there was no way for other generations to see us as children in the way that we see children now. Like, I, I can't help but not think of all these layers to what my experience is of younger people now. You know, I'm sure there's so many who have, who are having similar experiences to Laverne and I, and then there are others who are able to explore and have more joy and more support that we see more publicly. So it's, it's, it's a, such a complicated question to understand the change in generations because there's so many factors at work. One last thing I was wondering, I know we already promised the last thing, but okay, here's one more. thing. <laughs> what was the emotional experience like? You know, I, I think we talk about movies, we talk about work, and we talk about the intellectual challenges behind them and the ways in which we tackle those. And, and listening to you both talk about joy and balance is, I was, you just struck me like, what did it feel like making this movie? How did you feel? Of course, you probably didn't feel just one way the entire time, but um, to Sam, for you and, um, and, and for Laverne, what were your feelings as you were going through old clips and as you were talking about them and as you were, because it also seemed to me like the documentary built a really lovely community and, and a, a discussion, um, at least on screen, and um, a discussion that was really you know, rich. So what did it feel like to, to be a part of this film? Yeah, I really wish there was a way cinematically that we could have done more interviews as a group, you know, and kind of created the sort of organic conversations that happen off screen, yeah. um, where it's not just one person talking. Um, you know, going through the material, one thing that was surprising to me to feel was kind of this deep validation of, mm. you know, having seen the roots of so much of the hate and shame and violence that I have held within me, seeing some of those roots in media that I know pre-existed my experience of seeing media. So, you know, it just becomes part of the societal ideologies, the belief systems around trans people. And so seeing how that has been so deeply rooted in our, in our, in our cultural experience was validating because you're often constantly gaslit for your feelings when you're in a marginalized community. Mm -hmm. You know, you're told you're overreacting. It's just a joke. It's actually not, you're, you're, you're misinterpreting. And then to, to see the evidence was like, okay, 
I thank you. Like I, I now understand why these feelings are so deep. Yeah. Um, and sharing that with people and, and seeing that experience just took it to a whole other level. And being on set with trans people, with the trans crew, and having the shared knowing, the shared pain, the shared trauma, and the shared joy, and being able to kind of enjoy the nostalgia of it, um, I think, you know, there's something unique about being able to access the joy while holding the pain as well that you find you're able to do among people who have a shared experience. You know, and there were really hard moments. There was, we did an interview with this woman named Jessica Crockett, who was one of the first out trans people in a television show playing a trans role. I think it was in 1990. I have the date wrong, probably, but it was in... Um, it was in the late 90s. It was late 90s, actually. It was um, Dark Angel was the show. Dark it was 98, 99, actually, somewhere in there. Okay. I know it was before Candace. That was the, the like, so I know it was before 2007. So it was the late 90s. And, you know, basically she never got work again. It was, it was way too, you know, early. No one took her seriously. She had a horrible experience on set. But I knew about her work and I wanted to include her in this story. But when she got on set, she froze because it was like she was having PTSD. And we all saw this happen in real time. And as soon as the camera stopped and the lights went off, she kind of came back. And then we would go back to the interview and she would freeze. And it was it was palpable. Like everyone in the room felt this experience and it was, it was devastating. There was a lot happening through, you know, in terms of when you want to talk about the emotional experience that we had. Laverne, I would love to hear your, your take on the emotional. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Roller coaster indeed. Yeah. I mean, just being on set. I mean, I wasn't on set obviously as much as Sam was. He was there for everything. Um, but the days I was there, there was it was exhilarating to just hear folks, hear people tell their stories and to laugh and cry and have questions of my own and get to be, be in the excitement of it all and wanting to sort of get everyone's story out. And then the kind of trauma of revisiting some of the, as I prepare for my own interview and rewatching things and, and having memories of things and then like thinking they were bad. And then sometimes it was worse than I even remembered, you know, and then finding ways to try to talk about them. And then even there are things that like, like I'm just the nip tuck moment. I would, cause I rewatched the film. I saw the, I watched the film three times this weekend <laughs> and it's never easy for me watching me like try to grapple with, like recounting some of the storyline from that, um, Ava's storyline from Nip Tuck and just kind of how hard it is to talk about. And then when it, when it happened, just kind of like having, I just remember the moment, like, and I was, I was a huge Nip Tuck fan. I watch a lot of TV. And when that storyline unfolded and a lot of the other trans stories on that show that we didn't even have time to get to in, this, in, in the film, just how I, I it just... It's a weird shutdown in the moment that happened. It was just like, oh my God, this is, did they really do this? And then it just wanting, and then just kind of like not having, like being upset and then wanting to sort of shut down because it's just too much, you know, going back to like how shut down I, I, I become, especially because of my own trauma, right? When, um, oh God, when things come up, Boys Don't Cry is similar, similar as well. When things come up that are just so, um, that hit close to home or that are just so disturbing. And 
I think it's the it's the combination of sexual assault with um, trans identity that really where the shutdown happens for me, and it becomes um, I don't know, like my nervous system has not found a way to to handle that yet. I haven't found a way to handle that at forty eight years old. So though that that combination is really hard for me, and it and it hasn't stopped being hard for me. Um, I'm not sure if it ever will. Damn. But then, <laughs> but then <laughs> there are moments when Candace Kane is laughing about like her trying to strap down her boobs, you know, when she, her storyline on Nipchak, you know, and then when, they were, when Bianca Lee, you know, says, you know, says, and then Michael Kane shows up in a shake and go wig. And I just laugh every single time. And the ways in which we're able to find joy in these, in moments that are disturbing and moments that are, you know, <laughs> just fully fucked up, you know, how we're able to laugh and find joy, at, particularly as trans people, that knowing laughter that Brene Brown talks about that I feel when I watch the film, I feel when I talk to my, my sisters and my trans siblings in real life, that gives me so much hope that we can find ways to laugh and at the ridiculousness of it, right? As um, Brian, you know, sort of was like, why you the showing of the, of the breast to disclose, you know, that someone is transmasculine. It's like, what, there's other ways to do, explain it. And this is the ridiculousness of it, the ridiculousness of it particularly in montage. It's that like montage. so ridiculous. I'm sorry, what? That montage was crazy. I mean, crazy. crazy. Absolutely right. Like, that keeps happening. What is that? The ridiculousness of it is like so funny that we just kind of have to laugh. And so that is the thing. It is the both and of the whole experience for me as as a filmmaker, as as an interview subject, that it's the both and. It is the joy. It's the pain. It's the possibility. It's the hope. It's the beauty of trans people. It's the beauty of having us at the center of this narrative with our stories, with our experiences, with our trauma, with our joy, with our pain, with our hope, with our possibility, that is just, it's beautiful. And, and the pain, the trauma, what I've learned as an artist is those things, as awful as they can be, are necessary for art. They are, they are deeply necessary and they're necessary too because if we can tap into that, as, as painful as it is sometimes to watch disclosure, that it can resonate with someone else's pain, not in a way that is exploitative. I don't think we go, we go there, but that again, people can feel very much what Sam felt, that validated and like, okay, I'm not alone in, 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 in this feeling. And, um, and I don't have to go it alone. There are other folks going through this and I can, I can reach out and, 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 um, and be in, community i can be in relationship and 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 get through this better all right thank you we're gonna have to wrap it there i could literally talk to you guys forever thank you so much we've been speaking with sam fader and laverne cox about their new movie now streaming on netflix disclosure thank you both so much thank you have a lovely day thank you You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. 
Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 